You're listening to KCBP Community Radio on 95.5 FM and streaming on kcbpradio.org. This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. This is Women of the Valley with Linda Scheller. Today, my guest is Hannah Renning. Hannah Renning moved to Turlock in 1970 and a year later joined the American Association of University Women, Turlock Branch. Over the years, she has served in numerous AAUW leadership roles to support higher education for women and gender equity. Most recently, she advocated for funds to send middle school girls to TechTrek, a STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics program. Hannah also helped establish the AAUW-CSU Stanislaus student branch. In the early 1990s, as a member of the Friends of the Turlock Library, Hannah developed a plan for an annual used book sale. Now an annual three-day fundraiser featuring thousands of books, the event raises about $5,000 a year for the Turlock Library. Hannah is a charter member of the Modesto Symphony Orchestra Chorus and a fellow alto, and she has served on the Turlock Concert Association Board, where she helped to bring music education to Turlock school children. She has served on numerous boards in Turlock and Stanislaus County. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hannah. I'm happy to be asked. What I just read was actually from the Stanislaus County Commission on Women. Hannah received the Living Pioneer Award as one of the Outstanding Women of 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. You have done so much volunteer service. What inspires you to give your time and effort to the community? Well, I can answer that in a number of ways. I think that uh, I feel that if I'm going to enjoy the benefits of the society in which I live, I need to contribute to it. And there's a long tradition in my family, especially my father's mother was already a suffragette, and uh, I'm active in the League of Women Voters at the present time in that direction. And um, just the idea that we need to, as the saying goes, give back to the community is what inspires me. Uh, what are the rewards that you feel from from these community services that you have given us so graciously? Well, I think the wonderful opportunity to know a variety of people who feel equally dedicated to the things that they do. And I am convinced that no one person, no matter how great a leader, can do everything alone. And it's wonderful to work with other people, especially with other women, uh, to make life better for everybody. You've had a lot of library experience in your life. Could you tell us Mm -hmm. about that, please? I'll be happy to. Um, I began with uh, East Lansing High School in Michigan, uh, where I was a student. I would work there in the school library. I would work at the East Lansing Public Library on weekends and do mending, but also do the story hour for children who came in. Then there was a period of time where I did not 
do much library work until I had children and they were both uh, beginning school. I worked in the Crowell School Library in Turlock. Later, I worked at Turlock Library as a part-time library assistant and uh, did the same thing much later in the 1980s to mid-90s at the library at uh, Stan State. I almost became a librarian myself. Did you? Yeah, my oh, mother okay. was a librarian. Oh, really? That was my career goal, and then I became a teacher. <laughs> well, they're related, I they think. They are. What can you tell our listeners about the American Association of University Women, mm. and what does that organization do? The AAUW is an organization that goes back to the year 1881. Ooh. And um, it's nationwide and has been international as well, working with similar organizations, trying to get opportunities for women to be educated beyond high school. The idea is that women can contribute a great deal to society if they can have a higher education. So we do a lot of work with fundraising you mentioned the Tech Trek yes. opportunity, which is a wonderful thing, and it just does a number of different things for its members and for the community. You were born in Germany during World War II and came to the United States as a small child. Would you be willing to share your story with our listeners? I'll be happy to, and my major emphasis here is to convey to people that refugees who are despised by so many people nowadays, that there is a long history of refugees finding a haven in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I want your permission, Linda, to be able to read a little from my older sister's account of how we left Germany, if oh, that's all right. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm going to be reading from her reflections, her name she has passed away, but her name was Michael Van Domlen. Mm -hmm. And this is on the internet if anybody wants to look at it under Reflections. And oh. her last name, V-A-N-D-O-M-M-E-L-E-N. And she writes at the beginning, My mother, Bertha Bonestead, was the daughter of a rabbi, Joseph Norden. My father, Werner Bonstedt, was born a Lutheran, but had become an agnostic, and his father was a school principal oh. after having taught school for many years. They lived in Berlin, and they were there into the mid-30s. The Nazis came to power in 1933, mm -hmm. and... My father was um, promoted very rapidly because the editor of the publication where he worked had to leave Germany to save her life. Oh. And so he took over in his early 30s as editor of a weekly um, publication on economic, social, and political matters. Hmm. And it was known that he was an anti-communist because he had run for parliament on the last ticket for a free election for one of the middle-of-the-road parties. I see. So his name was known to the Nazis. And by 1935, things were getting pretty desperate for somebody who had a Jewish wife. Wow. 
and he was in the wrong kind of politics. The Nuremberg Laws were promulgated in November of 1935, oh. and so by that time, they had decided to have another child. They already had two children, John, uh, as he was later called, and Marianne, um, who later changed her name to Michal. And um, they decided to have another child to spite the Nazis and oh. to uh, show that just because they were from different backgrounds, that did not make them inferior. Mm. So... The Nuremberg Laws in November, I was born in January 1936. Oh. And by that time, my father had been warned by a nice stormtrooper, there were a few, uh, that his name was on a list of people to be rounded up oh, and put into a concentration camp. Oh. So they were able to look for a place that we could go and my father had a friend, his friend had gone to the University of Panama in mm. Central America, and they were building up a new university in Panama City. And so uh, we just recently found the papers that went back and forth uh, between Panama, uh, the university, and the president of Panama, and my father, whether he should be hired. And he was able by March 1936 to be hired oh, in goodness. Panama. And so we were ready to go. We could take our household things with us, but no money except for $20 approximately. Oh. Um, my parents decided that we would go and say goodbye to all the relatives, the Jewish and non-Jewish grandparents. And by uh, the spring of 1936, May, end of May, beginning of June, we were ready to go. And this was the same summer when the Olympics were held in Berlin, and Jesse Owens did his yes. spectacular performances. So I'm going to read a short excerpt from my sister's description of how we left. Um, she said that she was six years old, by the way, when we left she said, in spite of the sadness at bidding farewell to friends and relatives, I felt great exuberance at the prospect of a trip across the ocean. I could feel that my parents were very tense and seemed to have tears in their eyes all the time, but I was too young to understand fully why this was so. I myself felt some of that tension only on our tra train trip out of Germany and into Belgium. My brother and I, my brother was nine years old, mm -hmm. my brother and I had been instructed to keep still at all cost at the border crossing, and I can still remember the stomach ache I had on the train, and especially when the German border guards checked out the four of us, and in a string bag, there was something for which we had a permit, namely a small domestic animal, which was me. Oh, my goodness. Because it was too dangerous to get a passport for me. Oh. And so we had an export license, and I was a bunny rabbit, oh. uh, according to the export oh. license. Oh, my goodness. And luckily, they didn't look inside all oh, these yes. bundles inside the string bag, and we got across the border. And we um, went to Antwerp, where we boarded a Danish freighter, the Annie Johnson, 
and went to Panama and spent four years there. And my father had learned enough Spanish at the Berlitz School in uh, Berlin in order to be able to teach uh, economics and sociology. So we would have stayed there except that my mother couldn't stand the climate and then the government changed. There was a coup d'etat and they didn't want the refugee professors there anymore. So in 1940, we had to leave in a hurry and we went oh. to the United States of America and we took a Peruvian freighter that went up that way, and actually not a freighter, a regular ocean liner, stopped in Havana for a few hours and then up to New York. And I remember that trip very well because I was four and a half years old. Mm. So I was born just before the war uh, rather than during the war. When we got to the New York Harbor, this is when we really found out that it was not a good thing to be a refugee because we were stateless. We had no papers. Oh, gosh. And so we got to New York Harbor. We did not have to stop at Ellis Island, but the immigration people came on board, and they told my father he was on the list because he was a fascist and that this list had been given to them by the Panamanian government and that they were not going to let us in. Oh, And of course, if we had been sent back to Europe, we would not have survived at all. And luckily, my father had a friend who had emigrated before the Nazis, and he worked for um, Smith College in Massachusetts and for the State Department. Oh, good. And they got hold of him, mm-hmm. and he said, this guy's okay, he's no fascist, he's a refugee from the Nazis, rather than being a fascist. So we got in, we landed in Brooklyn. My parents were so relieved to have found refuge somewhere that they actually literally fell on their knees and kissed the ground. So this is what's in my background Mm -hmm. as a torch of liberty Mm -hmm. and regarding uh, human rights and um, that people who are fleeing from oppression are not bad people. They are not necessarily working for foreign governments Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but they can be genuine refugees. So that's our story. And then we lived in Ohio, where my father was able to get a a job at a small college uh, through, uh, it was a group that funded uh, positions. This was still the end of the Depression. They paid for people to be able to teach at colleges who were coming from Europe. And we lived there for four years We were enemy aliens as soon as the United States got into the war because we were still regarded as German. But in spite of that, my brother was drafted into the American army. Hmm. He got to be a U.S. citizen first because he was entering the army. And then the rest of us were also, um, we became American citizens in 1945. Our guest today is Hannah Renning, and this is Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. 
So from the Midwest, how did you get to California? In the meantime, uh, I had met my husband, if this is an appropriate time oh, to yes, talk about that. Oh, yes, I'd love that. to okay. hear about it. We all would. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I was fortunate enough after I graduated from Michigan State to have a Fulbright Fellowship and spend a year in Freiburg, Germany, and met, among other people, my future husband, Dieter Benning, who became a professor after he came to America in 1960. And so we we had met there, and he had taught in the Midwest at a couple of different places, Illinois State and Kenyon College. And then we came out to California in 1970, as you said earlier, Mm -hmm. uh, when he got a position at uh, what at that time was Stanislaus State College. At what time did Dieter come to the United States for the first time? The first time was in 1952 when Ah. he had just graduated from high school and he had a free trip on a freighter to New York, but not counting that. He came in 1960 after completing his doctorate in Germany. I read the account that you wrote about your Fulbright year and... It just sounds marvelous. And then, of course, to meet Dieter and... It was a very interesting year, and I learned a great deal, not just history Mm -hmm. uh, academically, but I learned from people who had been through the war and had been through uh, the, the Nazi period, like my godfather and his wife, who was also Jewish. And uh, it really was a wonderful way to get to know more about my heritage. You were telling me before we started recording some of the other family members who escaped Nazi Germany. Could you um, share about that? Because I know everyone wants to hear this. Okay, okay. Um, My grandfather was born in 1870. And so he'll be, he would be celebrating his 150th birthday Ah. next year. And he was the rabbi for many years of synagogue, a temple, I should say, in what is now part of a put-together community of Wuppertal, which is in the Rhineland near Dusseldorf. And uh, he had... Well, to begin with, there were four children, and then much later, another child was born to that union. He had the opportunity to go to where his various children had gone to save himself, but he had retired. He had gone back. He was a widower. He had gone back to Hamburg, Germany, which was his home, and um, they needed a rabbi to take over the congregation because the young rabbi had emigrated Mm -hmm. with his family to save them, and they'd gone to England. And so my various, um, my mother's siblings, when one of them was already deceased, and uh, then her sister Frida went to what was at that time Palestine and is now Israel, Mm And she and her husband were parents of one child who is still alive today. He was born in 1930, the same year as my sister. 
and she had to raise him alone because her husband was killed by one of the two bombing raids on Tel Aviv oh dear. during World War II. So my grandfather could have gone there. He could have gone to China because that's where his youngest daughter had gone. And that's a very adventurous story for which there's no time today either. (laughs) And then I was telling Linda before we began to uh, converse with all of you listening that uh, sort of the black sheep of the family was my uncle Albert Norden. N-O-R-D-E-N was the last name. And if you look him up on the internet, there are a million hits there because he was a very well-known communist uh, journalist. He had joined the party when he was 14 years old uh-huh. and had been already expelled from school for misbehavior. Oh, my. And uh, was generally not of the same uh, opinions as his parents were. And then um, he had quite a career with the party. He was well-known as a speaker, He had to disappear as soon as the Nazis took over in 1933. He had to hide out, for example, in my parents' apartment Mm. overnight and had to change the location every night until he was able to find a way to get out of Germany, which he did via various countries, and go to Paris, where he worked as a communist journalist. And then he was, as I told Linda, He was uh, taken by the Vichy French after the Nazis moved in to a concentration camp in France, in southern France, and then escaped from there to go to Mexico, but never got to Mexico because they were intercepted by the Dutch Royal Navy and turned over to the American Navy, who made them go to New York. So he spent... Four years as a capitalist uh, slave (laughs) in uh, New York doing factory work and and Uh doing some journalism there, too. Then he was asked by the Russians to be trained to take over portions of the government of East Germany. Oh, And that's what he did, and he became eventually the propaganda chief for East Germany. And you were telling me about his wife, how, how she yes, left? Yes, his wife was not Jewish, but she was a communist. She was the daughter of a factory worker in, in Hamburg, and they had fallen in love, and she tried to find him and then found out where he was in the concentration camp and loaded up her rucksack and walked all the way from northern Germany, from Hamburg, all the way to southern France. Oh, my goodness. And they escaped from there. How long did that take her? I don't know. I never heard that. What a perilous trip. Boy, that's love. (laughs) But anyway, they were in no position to have anybody come and stay with them. So my my grandfather could have come to Panama. I see. We urged him to come to Panama, but... Mm -hmm. He just wouldn't leave his congregation and became a victim of the Holocaust because the whole congregation in 1942 was taken away to Teresin, Theresienstadt, a concentration camp. And he was um, 
frail, I guess, by that time. He was in his 70s and uh, died of dysentery, which was caused by hunger. And let me add a footnote here, which doesn't belong in this account, perhaps, but is interesting. He uh, was a widower, as I said, and he had a younger friend, in fact, she was my mother's age, who became the first official rabbi, female rabbi, in the world. Oh, and her name was Regina, or Regina, yes. Jonas, uh, like Jonas. Yes. And um, there's a book about her, if anybody wants to read that, which was translated into English. And uh, it's very a very interesting story. And we have the letters that he wrote to her, which were sort of love letters, Aww. you know, and poems that mm-hmm. he wrote for her. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Oh, I'm very sorry. That's well, I am oh. too because we never met her. Yeah, and he said he, if he were younger, he would have married her. So you were a refugee who emigrated to America. What were some mm-hmm. of the challenges that you faced? You know, I personally didn't have that much awareness because I was so young mm. when we came. But my sister and my brother. I think, had more challenges. And as a family, um, during the time that we were enemy aliens, we had to report to the FBI if we wanted to go anywhere overnight. Oh, my goodness. We were not allowed to have a, a shortwave radio because we might use it for espionage. Uh, we were told by our neighbors, who were very well-meaning, that we should not put down our shades all the way at night because people might think that we were spies and and were in touch with uh, people and and were communicating with them. And um, I remember on the playground in grade school that there was a a boy whose last name was German-American, I'm sure Jackie Leister was his name, and he would chase me around the playground at school and say, Nazi, Nazi, you know, things like that. Yes. And since my mother wanted us to keep up our German in case we ever went back, you know, she she thought that we might someday. My father didn't want to. He said he didn't want to go back to a country where those things had happened that had happened. Yeah, But uh, we would always stay behind her if we were in a store or anything like that because she would be talking German to us and we would be careful. But we were not persecuted. My father would get calls from people who were sympathizers of the Nazis, the German Bund, maybe you've heard of that, B-U-N-D. Yes. And they would call and threaten him that if he gave any more speeches against the Nazis, they would get him. Oh my gosh. This was in America? Ohio. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's where terrible. almost everybody had a German grandparent. Yes, and your poor parents. Um, did they know much English when they first came to America? Yeah, my father did because he had gone to a school where they taught English uh, for seven years before the kids graduated. So he had been an American prisoner of war during World War One. He was oh. he was drafted into the German army at age seventeen. Mm-hmm. 
And in the last German offensive, he was taken prisoner by the French, and they had nothing to eat themselves, so they didn't want prisoners of war to feed. And they turned him over to the Americans, and he became the camp interpreter and could communicate very well in English and could lecture without any problem in, in America. People could understand him. And your mother? My mother used the Sears Roebuck catalog oh. and looked things up, you know, because she'd have a picture there of yes. the item. And then she had some school English, but not very much. So it was difficult for her to learn. Mm. Yeah. I feel as if I haven't said enough about living in the valley. Oh, Would please, you like me to say more about that? I would love to that? hear that. Yes, okay. thank you. And I think that we noticed it, especially going back to the Midwest to visit, how homogeneous at that time the population was there. It was before the big Latin American migration mm -hmm. began. Here in the valley, for example, in Turlock, where we live, uh, there are so many different ethnicities and cultures, and it's so much more interesting. That's for sure. Than it is to be in an all white, basically all yes. white area. And um, we have relished having contacts with people from India and from the Orient. And, um, of course, uh, Spanish Americans and finding out that human beings can be either nice or horrible mm. for each individual person. It's their responsibility to yeah. decide how they're going to uh, use the values that they have been taught or reject the values that they've been taught so that they can live with a variety of other people and that we're all enriched mm -hmm. by having this intermingling. Absolutely. Yeah. You are listening to KCBP Community Radio out of Wesley, California, 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org a project of the Modesto Peace Life Center. One of the things that struck me when I was reading the account that you'd written about your year as a Fulbright scholar was that some of the Germans with whom you stayed seemed to still cherish the Nazi ideology. And how can that be explained? I, I, I can't imagine how they could still think like that after the horrors uh, were uncovered and there was absolutely no doubt what had been going on if, if they didn't know before, which... I think the answer to that is that many people genuinely did not know what had gone on in the concentration camps or sincerely believed that it was only enemies of the state hmm. who deserved to be there. And, for example, Dieter's parents, my parents-in-law, mm -hmm. um, my father-in-law, I think, probably knew pretty well what was going on. And he was an anti-Nazi person. He ended up being sort of in internal exile and had to oh. go work in a totally different area mm -hmm. because he was a socialist and he said bad things about the Nazis. You know, But my mother-in-law, I think, had no political awareness, really, and didn't really know much about that. But my husband told me about an experience 
when they were sitting by the roadside watching a column of workers go by, and he had no idea who these people were, and they were concentration camp uh, victims who were doing slave labor. So people must have known things like that. Mm -hmm. And many people genuinely believed, and apparently still do, with all the anti-Semitic attacks now in Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, that Jews were evil, and that therefore whatever had happened to them was well-deserved. I was just mm. watching a movie that I had taken out of the library on on the movies that were made during the Nazi era in Germany, and I'd previously read about Der Sturmer and mm. other horrible, horrible propaganda. That must have had a, a just a poisonous effect on on the populace at large. Right. And a lot of people, I think, thought that the Nazis really had done a lot for the people uh, during the Depression Mm. because they created jobs, Mm. uh, partly in rearming Germany illegally. (laughs) And um, that, oh, for example, my my non-Jewish grandfather, the school principal, he and his second wife, his first wife, had died, mm-hmm. went on a cruise of the fjords in Norway on the program that the Nazis had, which was called Kraft durch Freude, mm-hmm. uh, which would be power through joy. Things like that appealed to people who maybe had no political leanings at mm-hmm. all. But you probably know, Linda, about the denazification that people had to go through Mm -hmm. after the war. And I don't know whether the the people who rented the room to me in Freiburg, a forestry professor and his wife, I don't think they ever had to go through that. Uh, And probably because of status. Oh, I see. I'm guessing Mm -hmm. that they didn't have to do that. Well, probably the effect was much more successful with children. You know, oh, yes. Just, just as it was the children who were indoctrinated initially by the Nazis. Right. Well, for the denazification, it would be the young who would be most receptive. Can, can I just say oh, in, in that regard that a number of educators were sent over from Germany under the auspices of the American government? Hmm. And my father would meet with them. He taught at Michigan State at the time. He would meet with them, and the goal was to get them to think in terms of democracy and retraining people to think differently in the way that you're saying uh, to the children who'd been taught history as seen by the Nazis Mm -hmm. were now expected to see history differently. Of course, they did the same thing after the uh, wall fell in East Germany. The people had to unlearn all that again. We're talking today with Hannah Renning. This is Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio. Have you ever met a Holocaust denier? Not that I'm aware of. No, I've met Holocaust victims who had the numbers tattooed Uh on their skin, but not not a denier. Okay, good. I read about people who 
who maintain that this could not have happened. And what, what would you say? <laughs> well, I think that anybody who has read any history books, yeah. which are based on evidence, Germans being very methodical people, mm -hmm. had kept wonderful records of all the horrible things that they did. Mm -hmm. Yes, true. And I'm very concerned about the rise of the right wing and the nationalists yeah. in Germany currently. What do you think of that situation? I'm, I'm not really somebody who is expert in that, but I know that what was East Germany mm -hmm. is the hotbed yeah. of that uh, whole movement and the alternative for Germany. Yeah. And... They tend to be somewhat extremist anyway in some of those areas like Saxony. And so they are accustomed to thinking in radical terms. Yeah. And it's also largely directed against immigrants, isn't it? Yes. And so we get, we get right back to right. the problem of um, xenophobia and hatred of others. Right. And that's, you know, a problem we, we wrestle with here in America. Yes. What do you think that, let's say, our community here, our part of the Central Valley, can do then to help recent immigrants and refugees to acclimate and to feel welcome and to become an integral part of our society? I think that there are several groups which are working uh, toward that already, like the International Rescue Committee, which is very active, I think, in both Modesto and Turlock, and I don't know about the rest of the county, who help people to get settled and to find a place to live and all of that. Good. And then uh, programs like the one which has been a subject of controversy, and, and I don't remember which high school it is in, hmm. in Modesto, where... Um, they have an age limit, a cutoff, beyond which they will not help students to become acculturated. Oh my goodness, I did not hear about that. I think it's Grace Davis oh, High dear. School. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Huh. But um, they took it to the school board mm -hmm. recently, August or September, and were turned down and wanted to have a charter school that would help people to acculturate. Yeah. And it was turned down by the school district. What a pity. Yeah. But and I think that churches have done a lot. I don't know what the Peace Life Center does, if anything, along those lines. Maybe you can educate me. That's a good question. I mean, we have our, our Stanislaus connections, so right. a lot of the resources here in the area are being written about, mostly by Tom Portwood recently, mm -hmm. and um, the Peace Life Center has also been integral in activism and the presence among our community of, of people who are united against hate and who are urging tolerance, understanding, respect, love um, for our immigrant neighbors. We've been also active and vocal against the separation of families. Mm. So every, I think it's every other Wednesday, at least once a month, there will be a group of people who stand at the Five Points intersection. Oh, really? And there's one <laughs> topic, it might be 
you know, against war. It might be um, against xenophobia and hatred. So that's that's good to know. Yeah, and we've had marches and coalitions against discrimination of various sorts against the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. um, discrimination against people of color. So, do you work with other groups like the Latina Roundtable or any of the uh, Black groups? I don't anything personally. The one thing I do, I volunteer as a tutor through the Learning Quest program at the library. That's very helpful. But when I said you, I meant the Peace Life uh, group. I can't really say. I've been pretty much. Focusing on radio programming, and right. before that, I and I will still continue to be um, a screener and or judge for the the peace essay contest. Good, and then I show up as often as I can for the actions. But mm. I don't know what else um, they're doing. But when I find out, I'll get them on this show. How's that? Well, that would be very good. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that you have a show of this sort. Yeah. So that people can learn who's there. I know, it's great. I'm so so glad you came. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Hannah Renning, and this is Women of the Valley. So let's take it to the neighbor level. Okay. Just as folks in our community, what can we do, our listeners, um, do to just make it clear that we are welcoming to people who are new to our community and new to our country? I I think that's a very good question, and there are many answers, probably. This is an area where churches Mm -hmm. have a great deal of influence, and I think that this is a wonderful way to include people, to invite them to come to churches, and um, it doesn't have to be a church, of course, but that's one organized way that things have been done. Mm-hmm. And um, I belong to the League of Women Voters. I think I mentioned that before. One thing that we do is try to make it clear to anybody who's mm-hmm. in the country and becomes an American citizen that they have the right and the obligation to inform themselves about legislation and about candidates. We don't endorse any candidates, Mm -hmm. but we have forums where people can learn about different candidates so that they can become um, engaged in the community in this way as citizens. Mm -hmm. And also the League of Women Voters does local and state and national studies by its members of issues which need to be looked at, such as gerrymandering districts, for example, (laughs) one of many examples, and where um, we discuss what we stand for and then vote on it, Mm. Um, whether we approve of environmental concerns, Mm -hmm. whether we approve of preserving people's rights Mm. and i can go on endlessly but that i don't think that's what you're looking for just in terms of neighbors i think that maybe we all have to train ourselves to be better neighbors Mm -hmm. 
we live in a neighborhood that's well established. Yes. But people really don't socialize oh. at all. Mm-hmm. And um, we have different ethnicities in the neighborhood. Uh, we have Latin, not Latin American, uh, Latino, I should say, um, families on both sides of us. Mm-hmm. We have a Chinese family down the street. We have people from different parts of the U.S. who've moved to California. Mm-hmm. But we don't really interact that much. And I wish that I knew a solution, Yeah, how people can get together other than one night a, a year yeah. and at the block party. Well, uh, that's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. But I think we need it just in everyday discourse and making sure that all the kids are treated equally at school. Oh, yes. yes. I think that... That would be very important. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have something to say about the role teachers can play. Yeah, that is huge. I was very fortunate to teach for 36 years in the Ceres Unified School District. I was at Westport School, Atkinson School, Don Pedro School, and I had students of many different ethnicities, and it really made for a much richer classroom experience for everyone. We learned from each other, and, and we thrived with this diversity. But there are those children and adults, but in this case, young people, who are less kind, and the teachers have to step in right away and make it clear that it's not acceptable and it will not be tolerated so that everyone feels safe. Right. But um, I always enjoyed when the school would have like a multicultural assembly and then the children would have a forum. They could get on stage and present a musical offering or dance or something from their tradition that they could share with the whole student body. And that, I look back on those events and they were some of the most special and make such wonderful memories. And they were some of the best learning experiences. Oh, sure. I'm so glad that my two children went to Westport School and I felt that it was almost as important, maybe in some ways more important, that they learned about other cultures, other ways to live, as well as academics, you know, so right. that was... Uh, and those know. are things that you carry through life yes, with you. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's wonderful that you were able to do that all those years. Yeah. You were speaking about citizenship. Do you know locally what there is for people who are m- moving to become citizens, classes or tutoring or help? I, I think the library sometimes offers citizenship classes, don't they? I have not heard about the library offering classes, but Hmm. they certainly have a lot of study materials. Oh, good. And um, I just know, in Turlock, I know that Sacred Heart Church has a program which prepares people for applying to become citizens, and of course adult schools have very good classes Mm -hmm. with that intention and I think probably in every community of any size in the county I I hope yeah well that's good we have a lot of resources and one of the things I love about having a community radio station is we can all become more familiar with what there is to offer right right 
Yeah, radio is very informative. Yeah. Going back to, well, Dieter's experience living mm-hmm. in Germany during the war, during the oh, period yeah. of, of Nazi power, what was that like? Well, and I, I will have to speak for him and hope that I'm representing his views. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he was born the year that Hitler took power. Oh, So uh, there's a pun in German. It was the year of the Heil. Oh. You know, when they mm-hmm. say Heil Hitler. Yes. And that means the year of salvation oh, is a different meaning. Oh. And so he always says that he was born in the year of the Heil. Mm. And that the he asked, we, we present, something about our lives during World War II period Mm -hmm. to school classes fairly frequently. Oh, good. And he says to the kids, well, it was going to be a thousand-year-long Reich empire. Mm -hmm. How long did it last? (laughs) And so then they have to figure out how long it is from 1933 to 1945, Uh, you know? Yes. So... um, he, I think his first experience was when his father was arrested oh. by the Gestapo in Hamburg because he had said things at work against the Nazis. Oh. And, for example, they were all supposed to, he worked at a shipbuilding yard. He mm-hmm. was a shipbuilding engineer. And, in fact, he was on the team that built the Bismarck, oh. the, the battleship. Yes. You know, he was one of many uh, designers of that, and uh, there was one member of his staff in the office who was a spy for the Nazis, hmm. and so uh, the Gestapo came and arrested him, took him off to jail, mm-hmm. didn't keep him more than a, a day or two, but um, examined him about his beliefs and whether he was a foreign agent and. Uh, came to their apartment, and oh. Dieter says he doesn't really remember it, but his mother told him that she was holding him by the hand so he wouldn't get out of line while these uh. guys went through and opened all the drawers and went through the closets and things. And that uh, he said to his mother, those uncles are really curious, aren't they? Oh. <laughs> so that was his first experience. And then... His father was allowed to leave the prison, go back home, immediately was fired Mm. from his job, and was forbidden to work within, I think it was like a 300-mile radius of Hamburg. Oh, my. In his profession. So where could he go? Yeah. And where he went was a city which is now Gdansk, in Poland, and oh. at that time was Danzig, yes, which was an internationally administered city administered by the League of Nations, hmm. and he could work there because it wasn't under German control. Ah, but then 1938-39 rolled around, and I think they were only in. Danzig for a year and a half, something like that. And Dieter remembers that time. And then the boss said, well, you know and I know that eventually 
Germany is going to take over this city again. Mm. And um, so you will not be allowed to work here anymore. But we have another shipyard in Kronisberg, which mm -hmm. was the capital of East Prussia, way off in the boonies in Germany, mm -hmm. and now under Russian control. It's now Kaliningrad, mm. the same city. And whether he'd like to go and work there. And so he was allowed to work there because it was outside the radius where he was forbidden to work. Mm. So he went there, and Dieter still regards that as his home city oh. during World War II. Mm -hmm. They got there just before the beginning of the war in 1939. Ah. And um, his father was eventually in charge of all the U-boat uh, submarine repair, hmm. uh, all the ships that came in from the Baltic Sea. Yes. And uh, Dieter remembers being able to go on board uh, when his father would go on Sunday morning and look at the work being done mm -hmm. and making sure that it was good quality work. He would be able to go along, and that was a big thing for a little boy at mm -hmm. that time. In school, they had um, they had religion classes, which appalled me that they would have religion classes, and I don't know what they taught them. Hmm. I think a mixture of probably Protestant religion there and Teutonic gods and that kind of thing that, that the Nazis liked and ah. approved of. And they would learn songs, which were Nazi hmm. songs. And they were aware that once in a while, one of their teachers would disappear. Oh. And Dieter said that one time, one teacher that they loved very much was standing outside when they were at recess, and he was looking in at them. And he had been fired because he was regarded as being anti-Nazi. Oh. And so they were aware of things like that. And then when they were 10 years old, the boys had to go into the junior branch of the Hitler Youth. I was going to ask about and that. I wish that Dieter could be telling this himself, but uh, that was an opportunity. His parents looked out for opportunities for him not to get sucked into all of the Nazi stuff. Right. And so instead of being in a unit where all they did was paramilitary training and marched around in their uniforms, they found out that there was a new choir, a new chorus uh, that was being established by the party. And it was part of the Hitler Youth. Mm -hmm. But they were on the radio live every oh. Sunday. Mm -hmm. And they had to... Um, march around a little bit before they got in for their rehearsals, but that was all the marching that they did. And he said that because of the director that they had, who was a wounded German veteran, mm -hmm. a young guy who had been a music student, uh, they learned all the basics of singing oh, good. that he still uses today mm -hmm. in, in the Modesto Symphony Chorus. Yes. And um, this man had lost half his face like the Phantom of the Opera oh. uh, because he had been in a place where uh, everything exploded and caught fire and, and his skin had been burned away. But Dieter said that 
He forgot about that almost immediately after he found out what a good person this was. And they didn't sing any Nazi songs. They sang good old German folk songs on that program. How nice. And then one thing that really struck me that he told about was when they performed for a group of wounded German soldiers. And there were two men in the front row. Each of them had lost an arm. And so they enjoyed the music so much that they wanted to applaud, but they had nothing to clap with. So they used each other's hands to clap. Oh. And I thought that was a sign of what could be done that was human. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't all inhuman. Yeah. But a lot of it was, of course. Did I answer your yes, question? Yes. And then what happened to his family is that his father had to stay at the shipyard when the Russians were close enough to hear the artillery. Oh. Dieter's mother and he were assured that they could be on a ship that was going to be leaving with a bunch of refugees on board and go back to the other part of Germany. Mm-hmm. And when they were there, they had to find their way. All the railroads were being bombed. This was in January, February uh, 1945, toward the end of the war. And they wanted to get to Dresden, where his maternal grandmother lived, because um, that had never been bombed. Mm. And so they found their way there by hook and by crook, and... When they had been there for a week, you know about the bombing of Dresden, judging by your expression. (laughs) It was a firestorm throughout much of of the inner city. Mm. They were just on the outskirts of that. And if any of your listeners have ever read Kurt Vonnegut, um, Slaughterhouse Five, Five, that was just down the street from where his grandmother lived. Oh my gosh. And... So I'll I'll leave it at that. And, mm. But if people ever want, you know, as long as we're still around, we're both in our 80s, um, we're happy to talk to groups about these experiences. Mm. Well, how can um, teachers and others get a hold of you then to line up uh, a talk? Because well, I know a I lot think of people would like that. I'd be happy to just give our phone number right now. Okay. If, if that's all right. Sure. Okay, so the, our last name is Renning, R-E-N-N-I-N-G. And my husband's name is spelled like somebody on a diet. Dieter is the pronunciation. And my name is Hannah, H-A-N-N-A. Mm-hmm. Our phone number is area code 209-632-4692. And thank you for inviting me and uh, I hope that this has been worthwhile oh, indeed. for listeners. I'm sure. Too. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. You're I've welcome. really enjoyed our conversation and I know our listeners have gotten a lot out of it. I, I hope so. I appreciate you coming in. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio 95.5 FM and online at kcbpradio.org. This has been Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. We hope you'll catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch.